Hi, this is May. And I'm Joy. Welcome to the QWERTY Writing Life Podcast, where we have candid chats about our creative lives. May and I are friends, writers, and creatives who want to share our endeavors out loud. On this podcast, we're here to encourage each other, and you too, and share tools we've discovered or made up, so you can follow your passions with a little support. So grab your tea, or your coffee, and let's get started. everyone it is another week hello and we are so excited to be here with you yet again we have some really interesting creative things going on this week and before we get to our topic we're going to talk about those so joy what do you do this week so this week i have been neck deep in edits for a client again this is our second round going through uh, his manuscript and once again, I just, I, I do love editing. I love the creativity of it. For me, there's nothing more beautiful than taking a sentence that might be passive or wordy or it just doesn't flow right and making it this beautiful thing that just flows, that just kind of rolls off the mind, I guess, of the reader that has an improved cadence to it and stuff like that. So yeah, that's that's my creative stuff for the week. <laughs> so what about you? Oh man, I'm working on a lot of things. And so we're still doing the homeschooling stuff because public schools are closed. And I actually really enjoy being with the kids and see how they work and how their little minds go. And um, I'm finding that sometimes they're smarter than I am, which that's always an interesting revelation. <laughs> <laughs> And sometimes I've just forgotten how how things are as a kid, you know, and that's really exciting, too, because I feel like I am reintroducing myself to my child inside. Ooh, got like all psycho- psychological on us. But but yeah, it's been really interesting getting to know them a lot better and see how their minds work, how their thought process work, how they logic things out, how they problem solve. It's all really cool to me. Juggling all the balls is hard and I'll, I'll admit that freely. <laughs> I have also done some work on cre- uh, creative businessy things and I had a lot, a lot of fun working up this episode for us today. Oh, yay. And I am so excited about it. May is really going to kind of take the lead on this episode. And this whole month is, as you guys might know, National Poetry Month. It's one of our favorite months, and we hope it is yours too. So going into April, what we wanted to do, since it is National Poetry Month, was to kind of highlight poetry with each of our episodes in some form or fashion, but not do the same thing every time. So uh, if you guys joined in last week, we had a wonderful chat with the amazing Rachel Ritchie and her daughter Cassie joined us, um, who has a poetry book out, and we got to speak with her, or you guys got to speak. At that point, our internets were all just being crazy, and, and so I didn't actually get to chat with her much, which was sad, but just means we're going to have to have them back on. Uh, so she talked a little bit about her poetry book, Coram Deo, and so tonight what we're going to do, May is going to talk to us about poetry types you might not know exist. 
and I am so excited about this because I really am not very familiar with any of these. So I'm going to be sitting here just soaking it up with all of you. <laughs> so take it away, May. <laughs> all right, guys. The first type of poetry that I'm going to talk about today is blackout poetry. So if you have not heard of blackout poetry, that's cool because you're about to know all about it. There is a link in the show notes that will have everything written down for you. Blackout poetry takes one form of literature and makes it its base, and it evolves it into another piece of art by, by choosing words and phrases to eliminate. And one of the phrases that I read in the article said that you really need to have a 50% minimum amount of words to be removed to claim your literature base as inspiration rather than plagiarism. So just kind of keep that in mind if you want to play around with this one. But um, Austin Cleon is the author of Still Like an Artist, and he is an artist himself. And he made this kind of like a pop culture revolution, like a favorite for everyone. And in a TEDx talk from 2012, Cleon said that he could trace the evolution of blackout poetry about 250 years before to a man named Kayla Whiteford who published a broadsheet of found poetry and puns he had collected from some of the first ever printed newspapers. Isn't that cool? That is so cool. And who knew it has been around this long? How cool is exactly. that? Exactly. Exactly. It was something that just seemed like this modern, edgy thing has actually been around for 250 years. So... According to Cleon's research, blackout poetry then made its way to a Parisian avant-garde poet named Tristan Zara, a painter named Brian Giesen, an American beat writer named William S. Burroughs, contemporary writer Tom Phillips, whose form of blackout poetry is called humament. I just liked that word, so I thought I'd say it. Humament. <laughs> That's a fun word to say. Is it? Humament. <laughs> Yeah. And finally, uh, to Cleon himself, who began creating his own blackout poetry as a cure for writer's block. And I thought that That's was idea. super cool. So blackout poetry. Um, and I have an example for you here. Uh, you can take not only newspaper, but you can take brochures. You can take those awful doctor's office informational pamphlets you can take anything you can take a cereal box if you wanted to <laughs> and you could make something really cool out of it so I did a blackout poem for you guys and I actually took an excerpt from Oscar Wilde's The Importance of Being Earnest which is one of my favorite Oscar Wilde's plays so uh, The Importance of Being Earnest is a comedy and the poem that I wrote with this excerpt is not comedic at all. And I thought that the contrast was actually something that was cool too that you could use. I'm going to read it to you and I'm going to point out a few things about it. Okay. It's called Speak Up, You Earnest Soul. Speak up, you earnest soul. You impossible deception. Noble charms of ancient truth, quite unread. That's it. <laughs> so here is, if you're on YouTube, you'll be able to see the excerpt of the page. And I actually got this excerpt out of a book called Classic Lit Blackout Games. And 
There is no editor or author attributed to this, but it's just a bunch of excerpts from classic literature. And if you're interested in something like that, uh, this um, adamsmedia.com. I found this in a salvage store, so I paid like 10 cents for this book, and I got like three of them. What? So I know. know. One day we are going shopping together. (laughs) And I have a Shakespeare one. I have the classic lit one. I can't remember if there's a different one. And what I also think is really cool, too, and I highly encourage you to do, is to make a copy of whatever your original literature (laughs) is, because you can find... You can make 50 poems out of one foundation and then you can do whatever you want to. In order to get up, I used two different words on two different lines. So if you can see this there, speak up, see like there. And then you is also kind of right here. You is kind of pieced together from some other things. I decided that I want wanted this word way down here by ancient so I just moved it because I can (laughs) so there's some really cool stuff that you can do you can get creative there are people who actually make the poem and then uh, draw over it uh, on on the newspaper um, a piece of art or some sort of painting or some mixed media stuff going on there so Look up blackout poem artists and see what they're doing. Maybe get some inspiration of your own. And as Cleon encourages us to do in his book, steal like an artist. (laughs) That's so neat. So how do you choose? Like, do you have any sort of method behind like which words you choose? Or do you just kind of let something pop out at you and see where it takes you? I read through it first, and then I have a pencil in my hand, and I underline the words that I like. So I liked the words deception, and there were some that I did I liked that I didn't use in here as well. I just underlined the words that I liked that just kind of popped out at me. And then I started thinking, well, this is a comedy, so maybe I want something that's a little bit more dire, you know? So to contrast with that, I thought that that would be fun. So I decided to make this a piece that was... A little darker than the original literature. So speak up, you earnest soul, you impossible deception. <laughs> like that's not funny, you know. So, <laughs> and yet we're laughing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, there were just some words that I just could not let go of. Like I wanted to use charms, and I found another word to go along with it. And I loved the noble charms. I thought, ooh, you know, because normally when we're talking about charms, we're talking about fooling somebody or some sort of seduction or something like that. So I like the idea of noble charms and just putting things together that don't normally fit. And I also loved the word, the original word is unreadable. So I changed it to unread and I, um, I just wanted to use that a lot. <laughs> so I did. And it's just making decisions, guys. That's really all it is. And practicing making decisions is a really good tool because you'll get faster at it and you'll start trusting your instincts. And this this practice of, of just making decisions and seeing what happens is so good. It's so good in any kind of creative field, I think. And I can see that being helpful for other types of writing. Because it might help you see those words 
a little bit more clearly and kind of, you know, get out some of the stuff that maybe isn't needed. Like I'm just thinking about the editing that I'm doing right now, you know, you kind of pull out those words that are the strong ones that are the the really good ones. Yes. Yes. So none of this, none of this poem has anything to do with the original text. And so you can see how something completely different that doesn't even look like the original, how it turns in, how it kind of transforms into something that is you that is original. And so once you do this and once you explore blackout poetry, you'll see that it's not anything close to plagiarism. It's merely inspiration. Love it. Okay, great. So on to part two. The next type of poetry we're going to talk about is monostitch. And monostitch is a poem that is one line. It can be an independent clause or it can be a deep dependent clause. So it does not have to have a period. It doesn't have to have a subject and a verb. It does have to make sense. Let's just be honest. But, <laughs> but it doesn't have to be what we would consider grammatically correct. And that's kind of a cool freedom thing, too. Kamiko Han wrote A Broken Thing, A Poet's Life on the Line, and he called monostitches a startling fragment that has its own integrity. And I think that right there is a perfect definition for monostitch poetry. When you read monostitch, the title is often important. It doesn't have to be, but it's also a way for the poet to get a few more words in edgewise. So Sometimes your poem, your poem title can show that your monostitch poetry is going to be sarcastic or that it's going to be contradictory to what the sentence is underneath it. So be sure to read your poem titles with a lot of focus as well and see how it can change the meaning of the independent or dependent clause. Monostitch poetry was birthed in 1894 by a Russian poet, Valery Ryusov. And what he said can be translated to, oh, cover thy pale feet. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I was thinking that maybe like somebody's feet were ugly and he was like, cover that up. <laughs> maybe, maybe we just lose something in translation. <laughs> maybe we lost something in translation. But that, my friend, was one of the very first, if not the first, monostitch. Walt Whitman also used a monostitch. It was a very long monostitch, by the way. It was not just like a one line. It was multiple lines, but it did not have the punctuation. It was technically one clause. And it is in Leaves of Grass. It's a pretty popular poetry book by Walt Whitman. So that's what we got. The title and the one line. So I am going to give you guys an example of that. I wrote a monostitch today to share with you. My title is My Life is Pockmarked to Hell and Back. And here is the poem. A bird's eye view reveals purposeful, cohesive, undreamable design. And that monostitch is about perspective. See, I have the benefit of, I'm, I'm sitting here like looking at her words. So I'm mm -hmm. able to kind of let it sink in a little bit more. I like that. The title is important because it has kind of a negative stance on things. Mm -hmm. And then the actual poem is kind of this lovely, airy, 
bird's eye view, undreamable design. Like it just kind of says something different. And, and, and it's really our choice whether we're going to focus on the title or if we're going to focus on the poem. It's just like life. Yep. I think that's very fitting, especially for this time. <laughs> And there are a lot of examples and a link that we have in the show notes. It's from briefpoems.wordpress.com. It's, it's really a great place to start when you are looking at different structures of poetry. The next type of poetry we're going to talk about is going to be the American haiku. So we learn a lot about the Japanese haiku in public school and that is the one where you're counting syllables and it's the five, seven, five kind of thing. And mostly those are about weather. Probably know about those. But do you know about the American haiku? Yeah. Oh, or not. <laughs> <laughs> so Jack Kerouac, who is most famous for this novel On the Road, and they actually made a movie out of it in 2012, if you remember that. He is among the beat poets who attempted to Americanize the Japanese haiku. So he offered his own definition of the American haiku, and I'm going to read that to you now. The American haiku is not exactly the Japanese haiku. The Japanese haiku is strictly disciplined to 17 syllables, but since the language structure is different, I don't think American haikus should worry about syllables because American speech is something, again, bursting to pop. I, I propose that the westernized haikus simply say a lot in three short lines in any Western language. Above all, a haiku must be very simple and free of all poetic trickery and make a little picture and yet be as airy and graceful as a Vivaldi pastorella. I'm assuming that's like an opera. I didn't really look that up. My brother would be so angry with me right now. <laughs> anger the brother. Don't anger the brother. We will be looking that up later. We promise. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so the American haiku is still three lines. It's not limited to syllables. And it still has to make imagery in your mind. And that's what I think are, is going to be the difference between, other than the syllabic difference. But I have a couple of Jack Kerouac's American haikus, and I thought I would read those to you. First, in my medicine cabinet, the winter fly has died of old age. <laughs> you can see it though, right? <laughs> like you can see this man like going into the bathroom, creaking open the medicine cabinet and seeing a fly carcass there. And it makes you wonder, right? It makes you wonder if he was off on a trip and he hasn't been home in a really long time, or maybe he's getting better and he doesn't need the medicine as much anymore. Or maybe he's trying to wean himself off of the medicine and it's like an addiction thing, you know, like there's so much cool stuff that you could, you could glean from this. And it's, Three lines, very simple, and it just sparks a picture in your mind. You like? I do. I do. <laughs> and then one other that I absolutely love, um, that's one of his American haikus, is this. Missing a kick at the icebox door. It closed anyway. <laughs> 
So the imagery that I see in this is just somebody who's gone and gotten all of these things out of the refrigerator. Their arms are full and they try to kick the door closed with their foot and they miss, right? And then it just closes anyway. And how metaphoric is that for just life, right? <laughs> when we try and we miss and good things happen anyway. So <laughs> A for effort, Jack. <laughs> so that is the American haiku. Very good. So our next type of poetry is going to be slam poetry. And this is one of my favorites. Oh, so one of my favorites. Slam poetry is poetry that is meant to be paired with performance. So it's not just the words on the page that you're going to be gleaning from. You're also going to be gleaning from the words that are emphasized whenever the poet speaks it. You're going to be getting information from their body posture. You're going to be getting information from their facial expressions and their gestures. They're, they're going to give you the story as a whole. It's also going to be a little bit more conversational than traditional poetry as well. So the structure of the traditional slam poetry was started by a construction worker and poet, Mark Smith, in 1986 at his reading series in a Chicago jazz club. Can we just put a timeout right here? I want every form of poetry to be made by a construction worker poet <laughs> who went to a Chicago jazz club and was like, listen up, y'all. <laughs> like, how romantic is that? I just adore it. Slam is one of the most vital and energetic movements in poetry during the 1990s. It has revitalized interest in poetry uh, performance, which had kind of slacked off there for a while. And uh, it was this the select form of competition that our, our the youth got involved in, actually. So they had slam poetry competitions. And if you go to YouTube, look at these young people just show off. Man, they are wonderful. I have a couple of favorites if you want to look into some slam poets. The first is Sarah Kay. And uh, I picked out two poems. The first one is Bird Made Out of Birds. And that's a newer one. I think it was just eight months ago or so. It was a TEDx uh, video on YouTube. And then the second one is kind of a classic of Sarah Kay's that I just adore. And it is called If I Should Have a Daughter. Taylor Molly is also another one. And his information will be in the show notes as well. He wrote a slam poem called What Teacher Makes. And man, if you're a teacher and you want to feel empowered, just go listen to that. And also to respect teachers a little bit more. Maybe we all need to listen to it. It's kind of like everybody needs to be a server for like two weeks of their life just to understand how horrible that job is. <laughs> so I think that everybody needs to listen to what teachers make so you can understand what these, pe these people go through in order to give your children a future. So Taylor Molly. He also wrote The Impotence of Proofreading. It's funny. I said that right. <laughs> That's funny. I'm going to have to definitely check that one out. <laughs> so those are just a few, just a few little tastes of it. And guys, you could go down a rabbit hole for slam poetry. And I hope you do. I hope you go research all of these because there's just a wealth of 
with wonderful creativity and artistry and all of these types of poetry. Uh, I do have a slam poem for you today. It is, it's a shorter one. And it's going to be impaired a little bit because if you're listening to this in audio, you're not going to see my body and you're not going to see my gestures and that sort of thing. But hopefully my voice will be emphatic enough that you'll be able to get a little bit more out of the poem than just reading it on paper. Also, if you're on YouTube, you can only see like my head. So <laughs> I'm going to try to do some gestures like up here where my audience is and hopefully you'll be able to feel the slam poetry and then we'll talk about it afterwards. This poem is called Badge of Honor. Dear me 10 years ago, you don't know me yet, but you will. I am who you will be forged and tested, held over the flame, and found wanting. Tried again and again, again and again, with each blow a piece of you, of me, understood a little more. Now I am not through the trials, and you are too stubborn right now to listen, but please allow me to gift you this hard-earned truth. Grief is not something to get over. It's not something to shed, a season to weather, baby clothes to pack away. When you feel the hurricane inside of you, know that returning to who you used to be will not calm the storm. If you can leave grief behind you, if it doesn't change the texture of your heart, I don't think you're doing it right. Grief is not something to fear, something to dread. It's a badge of honor on your lapel for your hands to cling to when they shake with emotion and loss. Inscribed in gold, and filigree, the badge reads, I feel this way because I was loved. I feel this way because I loved back. And though I have lost, I will not be sorry. Wear it proudly and do not hide your tears. They are the perfect compliment accessory. Remember, Believe, practice that, and your journey will be kinder than mine. Onward, you. Okay, so that's a slam poem. <laughs> now you guys have seen a little bit of her work that I just so adore. Thank you. <laughs> so I, I'm going to hold this up for the of viewers, but if you are listening, I have the, the printed sheet of the poem, and on the printed sheet, you'll see some pencil writing. That pencil writing is actual hand gestures that I connected to 
certain lines and certain words. So I have um, forged and tested, held over the flame. I wrote, show the head of Medusa. <laughs> so, <laughs> in the mythological stories where they come out and they've slain the monster and uh, they hold out the head of the monster, I kind I wanted that image. So show the head of Medusa held over the flame and then and found wanting that contradicts this victory moment, right? So found wanting and tried again and again and again. And every time I said again, my hand got lower and lower and lower because it's not a victory anymore, is it? When we're trying so hard and things just aren't going right. So that's an example of how you can note in your poetry actual gestures and as you are saying it and you're using your body and you're using your emphasis, you can be a slam poet. Awesome. And if you get the opportunity, maybe at your local, if you have a, a university, a college in your area or a coffee house or someplace where they're having a slam poetry night, I would so encourage you to go because like seeing Megan do this in real life, like, you know, you can see all of her, not just, not just her head. If you're just looking on YouTube or just hearing her, like actually getting to see someone, you know, doing this is, is super cool. So if you have the opportunity, definitely, definitely try to go. Yes, absolutely. I think any kind of poetry night is a cool thing to do, but I'm also a, a, a poetry person so but give it a shot man you might not know that you're a poetry person until you're a poetry person right so even if you don't write it you can feel the humanity and you can feel the commonality that you have with these people who are just kind of spilling out on the page um I did a poetry night one time and I wrote I read a poem called um where blood cannot venture and it's about how I'm going through the motions at my father-in-law's funeral and how I'm not supposed to be as broken as everybody else because I'm not blood, right? And yet I am, like I'm not able to, to function. And uh, there was a guy who came up to me afterwards and he was just there just to, to hang out. A friend of his was performing and he was just somebody who was supporting the community. and he had just lost his son and he came up to me afterwards and just said, I just need to, you know, I just need to tell you, thank you, you know, and he's crying and I'm crying. And it's like, you know, you just find that commonality, that relational aspect um, in a stranger. And it's a really cool feeling. So be that stranger for a poet too, you know, because that could be great for them as well. Finally, uh, let's talk about some prose poetry. I'm just going to briefly mention that in like 17th century, there was a Japanese poet who combined prose poetry and haiku. And right before he presented his syllabic haiku, he wrote a bit of prose above it to kind of explain where he was in thought and physicality whenever he wrote this haiku. So, that's not what we're talking about today, but that's really cool too. <laughs> I agree. 
So prose poetry in this sense is going to be um, poetry written as prose without the line breaks associated with poetry. However, it can use poetic devices such as fragmentation, compression, repetition, rhyme, metaphor, and figures of speech. But it doesn't have to. (laughs) I feel like there are no rules here. Yeah, on a I'll buy, what is that commercial? You know, there are rules here on delicious <laughs> baked beans. My kids love that commercial. <laughs> so uh, yeah, yeah. So there, there are guidelines. I think we can call them guidelines. But art is art, and part of being an artist is knowing the rules, knowing how to use them, and then knowing how to them and potentially break them well so just keep that in mind (laughs) yeah keep that in mind as you create things so there is a subgenre of prose poetry called micro memoirs and someone who does this really really well is beth ann finley she has a book out called heating and cooling 52 micro memoirs And micro-memoirs are just a block of words, sentences, just a bit of prose that ends up being poetry as well. So I have an example. I did not write um, some prose poetry for you guys today, but Beth Ann Finley saved the day with her heating and cooling. So I actually took an excerpt from her book. It's called Married Love. That's the poem I'm going to be reading, the micro-memoir. And... Here's an example of prose poetry. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. Married love. Y'all, I laughed so hard when I read this. I'm just gonna, (laughs) I'm gonna try to get through it. Okay. In every book my husband's written, a character named Colin suffers a horrible death. This is because my boyfriend, before I met my husband, was named Colin. In addition to being named Colin, he was Scottish and an architect. So you understand my husband's feelings of inadequacy. My husband cannot build a tall building of many stories. He can only build a story and then push Colin out of it. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's awesome. (laughs) Okay, so there was a couple of things that I loved about it. First of all, I love the play on words. I love the play on words where the Scottish architect can build a building with many stories and her husband can only build a story, but he can push Colin out of it. I love that so much. I love the way she presented it. Um, it is, it's very poetic if you think about it, the way that she, she had that play on words and she's like, here is what my husband does and how it all just progressed was, was really nice. And then I had to choose this one because my sweet friend Joy (laughs) not only loves architecture, but she is like gaga over Scottish (laughs) things, including people. (laughs) And kilts. Well, and what makes it even funnier is I have written, and you haven't read this, you don't really even know about this story, but I have a short story that I've been I've had to put on the back burner for way too long. But in it, it has a Scottish builder. So, anyway, just funny. Ooh. I know. 
it could be Colin. If you name him Colin, you have to, you have to tell Beth Ann Finley. <laughs> I, don't remember. I don't remember if I named him in it. I can't remember. Now I'm all curious. I'm going to have to go pull it out and figure out if he's going to be named or not. I am. Uh, I think she does this really, really well. And you, sh- anybody who's interested in prose poetry or micro memoirs should really pick up her book. Big fan of Beth Ann. All right, guys. Those are the five different types of poetry that you might not know about, but now you have heard about them. So you can't say that anymore. You are smarter after listening to this podcast. <laughs> I know. I've definitely learned some things. And I've you got me all excited about these different things that I didn't really know a lot about. So, yeah. And just think about ways that you can use that. Even if you're not a poet, you can use this and and ways that you are describing your art or maybe you hide a mono stitch underneath something whether you paint it or if it's edible words or something <laughs> I don't know. But, but there's some really cool things that you can do with this and even if it just helps you clear your mind man we're in some really weird times and if prose poetry helps you journal or if it helps get those thoughts outside of you that you are holding in that you're even too scared to think about, then these might be, this might be a way for you to kind of trick that out of you. Definitely. So it is time for our QWERTY challenge. Choose one of these forms you had never heard of before and explore it a little bit more. You can start with the links that we have in the show note, or you can just Google for yourself if you'd like. There are a lot of examples out there of all of these different types of poetry that you might not know about. (laughs) Think of your favorite creative medium and explore some unknown or newer forms of it. You can create your own, even. Get a little inspiration and steal like an artist. (laughs) So that's a a deep challenge, actually. Like, you're going to try to find something that's completely you and, and your niche. So, you know, I just, when you said that, I just thought about leafing back through my journal and just seeing how I naturally like write things and wonder if perhaps something strikes me about that. I don't know. You just a thought. You might be a you might be a prose poet poet already. And I don't know. Well guys I hope you hope you enjoyed today's episode and I would love to read, I know Joy would love to read too, some of your poetry. Please let us know. You can email us at editorial at logosandmythospress.com. And even if it's outside of any of these structures, we would love to have a conversation with you about poetry. Absolutely. We're pretty big fans of it. (laughs) And next week, you'll have a special treat because May is going to put me through a workshop. And I am going to apparently write poetry just live like no coaching like y'all are gonna see it raw and wriggling (laughs) and i'm using that somehow well nope you can't prep can't prep it (laughs) okay everyone go forth and have a wonderful creative week bye bye thanks for listening until the end Seriously, you're a trooper. Do you think pretty writing life is the bomb? May, you just said the bomb. Don't you censor me. If you think pretty writing life rocks ice for real, oh my word. please rate, review, and share us with others. If you have questions about this week's episode or want to start a conversation, you can reach us by visiting partywritinglife.podbean.com. We'll be back next week with more candid chats for you.